0: Would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter number 10 Hebrews chapter number 10 Come to a place in the book of Hebrews Where all of what we have learned so far is about to be applied in a very practical way In other words, we find here the reason For all of these observations we've been making for several weeks now Jesus is better, Jesus is better Jesus is better. The practical message of the book of Hebrews is persevere. In other words, don't give up. Now I wonder if there are any of you here this morning who have considered just quitting. In my walk with Jesus, there have been a few people who bore considerable influence in my walk with Jesus. I was encouraged and sharpened in some ways by them, looked to them as examples in some ways, and, and they've fallen away. And, and I, we have this more recent contemporary experience of all these conversations about deconstruction and deconversion and falling away and all that that entails. From up close and personal with those that I've known and loved and cared for, And now from some distance with this movement towards deconversion and deconstruction and all that you see in social media and elsewhere, there's a certain pattern that tends to emerge in the lives of those who quit, who turn back, who give up. There's that initial experience of being pulled and tugged at by the cares and the concerns of the world. Sometimes that will express itself an overt sin, great sin, obvious sin, public sin, sin that is observable by friends and family or maybe even the public. More times than not, the pull and tug of the world happens in a more subtle way. It usually manifests itself in an absence of prayer. The individual just ceases to pray. They cease to take delight in God's Word. In a couple of examples, in my personal experience, they continued teaching the Word but they cease to read the word for its devotional content, no longer reading that they might grow in grace, but reading so that they might demonstrate their knowledge in all things Scripture before the public or within a group. Prayerlessness is one of the first ways that this pull and tug begins to show up. And and then eventually there is a departure from the fellowship of the church. It usually starts slowly, Sunday here, a Sunday there maybe initially drawing back from a small group or a Sunday school class or a connect group in our case. And then over time, it becomes a pattern, and they're less likely to be there than they are to be absent. And over the course of time, they're just altogether missing, and there's no longer any expectation that they would be there at all. And then when that prayerlessness coupled together with their cutting themselves off from the benefits of enjoying fellowship with the church, meet pain and suffering, which are an inevitable part of life in this cruel world, they completely derail and go the other way. And I wonder if any of you have toyed with the idea of quitting yourself. If you have, this passage is for you. If you have not, but are inclined towards sin as we all are, this passage is going to be critically important for you, anchoring your soul behind the veil before that day of testing comes for you. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number one. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. This is a longer passage, but as you'll see as we read together, much of this is ground we have already covered together. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number one. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, ...would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, "'You did not want to sacrifice an offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, "'See, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll.'" I have come to do your will, God. After he says, above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way he is open for us through the curtain that is his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries." If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? We know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when after you'd been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you've done god's will you may receive what was promised for yet in a little while the coming one will come and not delay but my righteous one will live by faith and if he draws back i have no pleasure in him but we're not those who draw back and are destroyed but those who have faith and obtain life may the lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word you may be seated As I said a moment ago there's a great deal of ground in Hebrews chapter 10 which we have already covered together in Hebrews chapter 9 the point being made by the preacher is this the offering of Jesus's body and blood in our place is a better offering than the offerings of the Old Covenant what Jesus has done for us by his death and through his blood the blood of bulls and goats simply could not do for us. Verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 10 continues to elaborate on this topic, dealing specifically with the weaknesses of sacrifices made under the old covenant. Here we're reminded that the sacrifices of the old covenant were a mere shadow of the things to come. Verse 1 says, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities. What was foreshadowed under the old covenant and their sacrificing of bulls and goats and sheep and various other offerings has been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. Jesus has become our lamb without blemish or spot our Passover lamb the blood of Christ has been painted across the doorpost of our heart so that the judgment might pass over us by the grace of God. Jesus ha- has become our atoning sacrifice, Jesus' blood providing atonement for our sin, propitiation for our sin, and that the wrath of God against us has been quenched by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has become our scapegoat, carrying our sins away. Jesus has become our Sabbath rest, providing for all our need. All of the ceremonial obligations or requirements of the old covenant have been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, that old covenant, just a shadow of what was to come in absolute perfection. Here we're reminded that the sacrifices of the old covenant cannot perfect the worshiper. They cannot take away our sin. In fact, the text itself ends in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. What was shadowed in the performance of those ceremonies, not just the sacrifice itself But what was shadowed in the result of those sacrifices is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus and that all our sin is carried away in Christ. A note worthy of our mentioning here in verses 2 and 3 is that the repetitive nature of that old covenant sacrificial system was itself deficient fact that it had to be performed with regularity was a reminder of the sin. There was a consciousness of sin because of this annual or periodic sacrifice. It is not so under Christ. Jesus' sacrifice is superior and that he offers himself. Jesus' sacrifice is superior in that it is a once and for all sacrifice taking away our sin forever. The benefits of Jesus' sacrifice The superiority of Jesus' sacrifice highlighted in verses 5 through 18. Verse 5 says, Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. The substance of Jesus' sacrifice is better. It's not an animal. It's not a bull or a goat or a sheep or a pigeon. It is the very body of Jesus that is offered for us. Jesus offers his body according to the plan of God. Continue to verse 6, You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings? Then I said, See, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll, I have come to do your will. Jesus's sacrifice comes according to the will of God. In verse 9, the Bible says, He then says, See, I have... Come to do your will, emphasizing here that the death of Jesus as our substitute is done according to the predetermined plan of God for the salvation of his people. Jesus doesn't come and hijack the plan of God and do something entirely different. Jesus doesn't come in some way to thwart the will of God. Jesus' death and resurrection are not plan B, but according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God, Jesus intervenes in human history, providing his body and his blood as a substitutionary sacrifice, atoning for our sin, carrying our sin away. Verse 10 tells us that it's by the will of God that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Unlike the annual sacrifices of the old covenant, Jesus provides a once and for all sacrifice for sin. In other words, it is a forever sacrifice. There will never be a return to the cross of Calvary for Jesus because the body given there and the blood shed there is sufficient once and for all to cover for our sin Jesus makes his sacrifice and then he sits down at the right hand of God because the work of sacrifice it, it is finished this is at least part of what Jesus intends when he cries from the cross it is finished The blood of Jesus sanctifies the believer the blood of Jesus is once and for all the blood of Jesus takes away our sin unlike The old covenant sacrifices, the blood of Jesus perfects the believer. Verse 11, the Bible says, Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God, now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. The decisive victory over death and sin and the grave are won at the cross of Calvary in the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood. Jesus himself says, fear not, I have overcome the world. There's no great battle yet to be had. There's no fighting in the cosmos between good and evil. The victory has been achieved in Christ. One writer compared what's said here, described here in verse 13, to the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II history. On D-Day, tens of thousands of men stormed those beaches and won the decisive victory, in the European theater anyway, in World War II. Victory was secured on that day. But it was not until the day, victory day, that victory was ultimately declared. This is the first of several references to the promised return of Jesus. Jesus has secured the victory through his death and resurrection. But there is coming a victory day. When you see the Son of Man on the clouds of great glory coming to cleanse and claim his church forever and to exact judgment and justice against the wickedness of this world, that's the victory day. That world is that day is promised here in our passage as is the guarantee of Jesus' having defeated death and sin and hell and the grave. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those Who are sanctified. Now, in essence, we have touched on to some extent in weeks past all that is described in verses 1 through 18 of our passage. And we have been building up to what is stated in verses 19 through 25, which I believe to be a central passage in the book of Hebrews. I think everything that has been said thus far in Hebrews has been building to this moment. This occasion to exhort the church in practical terms to persevere, to stay the course, to fight the good fight, to persist, to hold fast to our confession. Look to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Let's just pause there. Again, this is predicated on everything that we have discovered about Jesus up until now in the book of Hebrews. We have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus because we have acknowledged together the superior nature of Jesus' blood sacrificed for us. Because Jesus' blood does for us what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. We may enter with boldness. We may come into the sanctuary with confidence. Under the old covenant, you may enter into the sanctuary, but there's always a measure of trepidation about that entrance. Is something out of sorts, Is something undone, but there is nothing lacking in the sacrificed blood of Jesus Christ. We may now enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Because Christ is our great high priest, having made application of that blood shed for us. Since we have now boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he is open for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Because the body of Jesus is laid down for us. Because the body of Jesus is rent for us. Because the veil has been torn and the curtain has been opened. We may now enter the sanctuary through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is our great high priest having made a better sacrifice of his own blood because he rules and reigns forever according to the order of Melchizedek, we may now enter the sanctuary with boldness and not just an earthly replica of the heavenly reality, but the heavenly reality itself. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, again, given all that we've said, here are are the commands. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Those first few words, let us draw near, that's the preacher's way of saying in the book of Hebrews, pray. He might just as well have said, let us pray. Pray. But in an even more telling way, a more descriptive way, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart. Brothers and sisters, if we are to persevere, if on our last day, with our last breath, we are to be found faithful to Jesus Christ, prayer will be a critical component part of God's means in keeping us against that day. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Pray, pray, and pray. Now, here's the deal. In my estimation, for those, if you're going to face a crisis in life, and you're going to face a crisis in life, right? So from time to time, I find myself counseling with someone who's at this pivotal moment in life where it's as bad as it's ever been and they can't imagine how things could be this bad and they can't imagine how God could possibly be at work in this scenario. If you have not at that point anchored your soul behind the veil in Christ, the likelihood of mustering the vigor and the energy and the spirit to do just that in that moment during that season is really low. So if, if you're here and happy-go-lucky and all is well, Don't don't make the mistake of dismissing yourself from the application of this passage, because your dark day is coming. Brothers and sisters, your dark day is coming, and the time to prepare yourself, to ready yourself for that is now. In fact, it may have already passed for some of you, but there's no time like the present. Pray. Pray. Pray, let us draw near with a true heart. Pray, pray, pray. I, I mentioned in the beginning, there's this pattern of drifting away. And the, the, the cares of the world begin to pull and tug at us. And the first way that that begins to show itself in our life is in prayerlessness. And, and I wonder how many of you, in the hustle and bustle of a Sunday morning, trying to get to church and look decent and be here on time and all of those sorts of things, have even given thought to praying today or how many haven't prayed in the last 24 hours or in the last 48 hours or in the last week or don't make it a priority to pray at all or are living as practical atheists with very little thought of God whatsoever until Sunday and the ritual of Sunday rolls around the next time. Prayerfulness is a critically important component part of God's holding us fast. Avail yourself of the great gift of prayer. Now again, if we connect this back to all that's been said in Hebrews thus far, we have to remind ourselves that prayer in and of itself is a remarkable gift from God to us. A privilege, not a right, but a privilege that we enjoy by the blood of Jesus. Because he is our great high priest, Forever at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, it's by his blood that we have the access we have, not into the earthly replica, but the heavenly reality. God hears the needs of his people by the blood of Jesus. Pray, the preacher says. Pray. Then in verse 23, he says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. If what's described in these verses is how to hold on, and that's precisely what's described in these verses, how to hold on, it may seem redundant for point number two in the preacher's sermon to say, hold on. But that's exactly what he says. Only he says it in a unique way. "'Let us hold fast or hold on to the confession of our hope for he who promised is faithful.'" Notice that the call to hold on is coupled together with this theological observation, he who promised is faithful. I know that in some circles, talk of doctrine or theology is not popular or even welcome. And frankly, in some circles, I can see why. But doctrine or theology is critically important to our ability to hold on or to stay fast in that day of difficulty or when the duress comes our way. He who promised is faithful is a reflection that serves as an anchor for our soul, It stills our anxiety. One of the key ways that you can hold fast, even under the most difficult of circumstances, is by reminding yourself of the goodness of our God. In fact, within the context of the book of Hebrews, reminding yourself of the superiority of Jesus over all things. He is better, he is better, he is better, he is better. Preach to your wicked and sin-sick heart, Jesus is better when tempted or enticed by sin. Jesus is better when in the throes of darkness and despair, even though I can't see his hand, Jesus is better and he has something good for me. When it doesn't add up or it doesn't make sense, Jesus is better. It is a good, beneficial thing and it has a persevering effect on us when we reflect on the goodness of God This theological observation is one that I find to be incredibly helpful. One of the most endearing qualities of our good and faithful God is his steadfastness and faithfulness. In a world that is topsy-turvy, we never know what's coming next. You turn on the news one day, and there's one crisis, and you turn on the news the next day, and there's a new crisis, or there are six one day and six new ones on the next day, but there's always a new crisis for the day those may be somewhat distant they may be far off from you but even locally close to home within your family or within your circle of friends or your sphere of influence there seems to be a new crisis or a new tragedy with each day that passes people are so incredibly unreliable today there's very little that you can count on in life in this world anyway but God is steadfast in his faithfulness Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes in him. There's no variation, no shadow of turning. He's just steady. He is faithful. I know what I'm going to get from Jesus tomorrow because it's going to be the same as I've gotten from Jesus every day of my life. We used to sing in our country church, in my home church, count your many blessings, count them one by one. Sometimes just reflecting on the ways, the many ways that God has blessed you and provided for you, reflecting on the favor that he's shown you over time can be a way of anchoring your soul in the confession of our hope. What precisely does it mean to say confession of hope? Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. We should ask, what is the confession of our hope? It's just the short slogan or mantra, the confession of our mouths, this statement that Jesus is Lord. That's it, that he's Lord, that Jesus is Lord. In a first century context, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. In our context, not the cares and concerns of this life, Not presidents, not principalities, not rulers, not other systems. Jesus is Lord. Not me. I am not the Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord. Not my feelings, not my affections, not what's culturally appropriate or acceptable. Jesus is Lord. That's the confession of our hope. This is often unnoticed, but this is a theme throughout the New Testament. When Jesus says, take up the cross and follow after me, what he's calling us to in that passage is that we would hold fast to the confession of our hope that indeed Jesus is Lord to the very last page of the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, the Bible is calling us in the face of fear and death, if it means marching face first into the teeth of death, we hold fast to the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of that military symbolism and imagery is just that. The weapons of our kingdom warfare are not literal weapons. It is the confession of our mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is how the kingdom advances. This is how the kingdom moves forward in victory. And this is how we enjoy victory individually by holding fast to that confession that no matter whether we can see it today or not, no matter what happens around us, no matter how great the pressure may be or how severe the persecution is or how indifferent our feeble heart may be, Jesus is Lord. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You better settle this in your heart today because your day of difficulty is coming. There there have been times when I've, I've, I've preached on the sovereignty of God, especially the sovereignty of God in seasons of hardship and difficulty that all things are being worked together for the good of those who love him, the called according to his purpose, that what's often meant for evil, God intends for good. And, and there's just just sort of glazed looks because it's it's, it's, hard, it's hard to count in a season, a mountaintop time in life, on the inevitability of that valley experience when everything goes to waste you've got to know, listen to me, come in real close, there's gonna come a day when everything goes to waste for you. There is going to come a day when the doctor declares a diagnosis that was not what you expected. There's going to come a day for you when the phone rings and it's the worst conceivable news. There's gonna come a day for you when your kids defect or they find themselves in trouble, uncertain times. There's gonna come a day for you when it's as bad as it could possibly be. And if you've not settled these realities in your heart at that moment, the likelihood of doing so under those circumstances are not great. Jesus is Lord. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. And he is faithful. He who promised is faithful and he is Lord over all and he is at work for our good even when we cannot see his hand he would not withhold any good or perfect gift from his people he does provide for all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and even the bad things yes even the bad things are being worked together by a good and faithful God for the good of his people the called according to his purpose but you need to settle those issues you need to anchor those issues in your heart at this very moment If you've not until now Because your day is coming friend Hold fast He who promised is faithful but That's not all he says, look to verse 24 Let us be concerned About one another In order to promote love and good works Not staying away from our Worship meetings as some habitually do But encouraging each other And all the more as you see The day drawing near this is, in essence, verses 24 and 25, a call to gather ourselves together in worship, not just for our good individually, but for the good of others as well. There's sometimes when you need to be in the worship gathering of the church for someone else. Believe it or not, this ain't about me and it ain't about you. This is about us as a body. Sometimes your Lord's Day presence here is more focused on someone else than it is on you, and that's an entirely acceptable and good and profitable thing for the edification of the church. You know, you, I get all kinds of cr- strange conversations at times about being in church. I was in a conversation with a gentleman one time, and he said, well, I was going to come to church, but I didn't feel like coming to church. So I was afraid if I did come to church and I didn't feel like it, it'd be hypocritical, so I just didn't come to church. That's the kind of logic and rationale, this kind of crazy idea that we have about what it means for the church to be assembled together on the Lord's Day. This ain't about you. There are times when your presence here is about someone else. But more than anything, it's a a warning to us of the danger of drifting away from the fellowship of the church. Because when cold indifference quenches our prayer life, And the pull and tug of the world is more than we're able to resist. And we eventually allow that to evolve into this experience where we're withdrawing from the fellowship of the church. You are at your most vulnerable for the attacks of Satan. When I begin to notice that someone is habitually absent from the meeting of the church, it's not their absence from the meeting of the church that is the most concerning. Like there, there are legitimate circumstances in life that pull us away from the church, but when that begins to happen, when that's a pattern, it's, it's the sin that I know accompanies or comes before that withdrawal that concerns me the most. W- when you're indifferent and you're prayerless, and you're being pulled and tugged at by the cares of the world, and you cut yourself off from the accountability provided by the church, and you cut yourself off from that shared spirit of worship enjoyed within the church, and you cut yourself off from the soul nourishment of the study of the Bible within the context of the church, or the preaching of the word within the context of the church, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Along the way, we allow that our hearts follow after our ethics. That's the way the pull and tug of the world goes. Rather than coming to terms with our sin, we begin to accommodate our new system of values by developing a new system of ethics and ultimately a new system of theology. That's how the drift takes place. I I try to tell people often, I'm not sure that many are listening, but the problem with high school students, this phenomenon of high school students graduating high school, going to college, and defecting, that That is not happening primarily in the science department of the university that they're attending. I know that's what all the talk is. They go there in the science department, they get them all messed up. That, I'm, I'm not convinced at all that's really the issue. The problem is more likely on Thursday and Friday nights when they're in parties that don't accord with the teaching of the scripture or spending nights with boyfriends and girlfriends, conducting immoral behavior involving themselves in immoral behavior that does not align with the teaching of the gospel. And eventually they will find their own ethical system that aligns with their new approach to life. And eventually they have to adapt a theological system that can accommodate that new ethical system. The first question we ought to be asking when college students defect is not what they learned in the science department, but who they're sleeping with on the weekend. This is how the drift takes place. This is how the drift happens. This is a sure-fired way to make sure that on your last day, you don't finish well. Be cold and indifferent toward the gospel. Allow yourself to drift away from the fellowship of the church and let the cares and concerns of the world, the desires of your flesh, drive the car. But if your desire is to finish your last day and to take your last breath in fellowship with Jesus, having run the race set before you well, commit yourself to prayer. Delight in the fellowship with God that has been afforded us through the blood of Jesus. Relish every opportunity we get to be together under the banner of the gospel, worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. This is a remarkable privilege. You realize that when we gather together this way, God does something here that is unmatched elsewhere. Like what happens in the corporate gathering of the church, you can't replicate that in your devotional life. You can't do that somewhere else. This is magical, and I say that with reverence. The Spirit of God in me matched together with the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of God in you matched together with the Spirit of God in your friend or neighbor, worshiping God. God is pleased to inhabit the praises of His people. God's glory is pleased to abide among the holiness of His people. God comes to meet with us. You relish every opportunity you get to celebrate the truth, the power of the gospel, and the glory of the God that we serve in the gathering of the church. You meditate often on the goodness of our God. You anchor your soul behind the veil with those meditations on the goodness of our God. And when the day of pain and suffering come, and it will inevitably come, you'll find yourself steady and steadfast against the storm. Verses 26 and following bring an end to the chapter. I'm not going to camp out there for a long time, but I I do want to acknowledge a couple of interpretive challenges here and to speak through them in the time that we have left. Verse 26 says, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of a living god. The theological questions that are asked of this or the theological question that's asked of this passage is, Pastor Wade, is this passage teaching that we lose our salvation? Well, the flat answer is no. The Bible never teaches that we can lose our salvation. If we could lose if I could lose my salvation, I already would have and you would too. Before you got off the campus today, you would do something to foul it up. But you didn't do anything to get it, and you're not going to do anything to lose it. Your salvation is not built up on or based on what you have done, what you are doing, or what you will do, but what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection. We're back to the very same scenario we discussed chapters ago in Hebrews chapter 6. Conversation on the danger of playing games with Jesus. Not all of Israel are Israel. Not all who gather with the church are the church. There may be people here in this congregation this morning who've been all around the work of God, who know all the right answers to all the right questions when it comes to the gospel, but have themselves yet to be touched by the power of the gospel. You keep toying around with the gospel. You keep playing games with Jesus. You rest assured that the moment that you make the decision to turn back, to revert back, to go the wayward way, there remains no sacrifice for sin. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The comparison that's being drawn here in our, pa- in our passage is this. The new covenant is not just better than the old covenant and that its benefits are better. It's also superior to the old covenant and that its punishment is more severe. Under the old covenant, a covenant made with the nation Israel, capital punishment was the loss of physical life but under the new covenant a covenant made with people of every tribe and tongue and nation a covenant with a spiritual emphasis capital punishment is spiritual death if death by stoning or death by any means At the mouth of a testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? Do not play games with Jesus. You're better off to just stop attending church until you make a determination about what I'm going to do with Jesus than you are playing games and pretending to be something you are not. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Now, listen to verse 32. Remember the earlier days when, after you'd been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. Or you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession, so don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. There was a time for them when, when they had they had exhibited the fruit of real repentance, and they they had persevered through some degree of. Persecution, if not them personally, then someone they were connected to. And even to those, the preacher says, hold fast. And he warns them of the danger of backsliding, the danger of drifting away. Now, if someone from outside of our cultural context can suffer persecution, be friends with those who suffer persecution, maybe even have their life in jeopardy for holding fast to their confession. If that kind of person in that kind of experience is in danger of drifting away, because we herald that as like a big deal, right? when When I meet brothers who are suffering for their faith, there's just a special place in my heart for that. But if those brothers are in danger of drifting away, how much more so you and I? It it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, you had better guard your heart. Paul says in the Corinthian letters, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I don't care if you're a pastor or a preacher or an evangelist or a connect leader or a layperson or an usher or a greeter, I don't care what role you play within the life of the church, you had better guard your heart and anchor your soul for the day of difficulty lest you yourself drift away. And deprive yourself of the great reward set before us by the shed blood of Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 37, the Bible says, For yet in a little while, the coming one will come, not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. A couple of things in our passage here. This is a genius move by the preacher. He warns them. He cautions them. And it's a warning, it's a caution that we can give across the board. We don't have to qualify or make exceptions. If you turn back, if you drift away, if what is so dreadfully described in our passage becomes your fate, you must know that it is a fearful and dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then on the other hand, he encourages them. He says, but we're not of those who drift away and are destroyed. We're of those who hold fast, faith, and obtain life. It's a genius preacher move. But notice here again, we have another brief mention of the coming of Jesus. They begin to be sort of peppered throughout the passage, and the frequency with which they show up increases as we read along In the book of Hebrews, for yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay. It's a reminder to us that not only does our window of opportunity for responding to the gospel, not only is our window of opportunity for responding to the gospel limited by the natural span of life, one day you will die and it will be forever too late, but our window of opportunity is also limited by the divine calendar. Because a day is coming when the Father looks to the Son and says, Son, go and get your bride. And on that day, it will eternally be too late. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come. And when he comes, he'll come to gather his bride, to cleanse and claim his church forever. forever. It will be the day, victory day, when the victory already won is declared over all the earth. Be found faithful in Christ On that day, hold fast to him. Whatever you do, do not grow weary in well-doing for in due time we will reap if we do not quit. Under weight and persecution and stress and heaviness, persevere, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. Don't turn back, hand a plow, we're never looking back because what's been set before us is exceedingly and abundantly better than anything behind us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. I pray that you would help us as your people to persevere. God, I pray again for those playing games with Jesus, that you'd give them a heart to discern their lostness, eyes to see and ears to to hear the gospel, I pray that you would convict their heart, that they could see the beauty of Jesus and their need for grace and mercy that can only be found in him. Lord, I, I know that the likelihood is that on some level they know that, but may these truths sink deeply into their heart. May they be truly born again even this morning. Help them to see past their baptism and church membership and all of their religious activity to their need for Christ, the depth of their sin, and the forgiveness that can only be found in Him. I pray that you would stir revival in our hearts. Help us to walk faithfully with you. Help us to love you and to cherish you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Help us to relish every opportunity to assemble together as your people in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, God, that you would be at work and move among us as a body this morning. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.